And now, from a secret location somewhere in Nevada, it's the IGN DigiGuys. Please welcome two men having a beer break next to the Ark of the Covenant. It's Wade Major and Mark Kaiser. Yeah, that was 30 years ago, Mark. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Raiders of the Lost Ark, 30 years ago. That's amazing. No, it's actually quite sad. Yeah. Well, because 30 years have passed like in a flash. And you know what? At the time, Steven Spielberg, Raiders of the Lost Ark was what? His, uh, at the time of Raiders of the Lost Ark, Terrence Malick had made two, mo- two movies, and Steven Spielberg, Spielberg had made like four. <laughs> and now, and now uh, Malick, Malick has made is- five movies. <laughs> and Spielberg has made 165,000 movies. Something like that. Oh, man. Actually, hey. he, he, yo, actually, here's what I forgot to tell you. What? So, uh, the other night... Well, hang on, hang on. That was a listener-supplied intro. So oh, hold your tomorrow night. Bob, who sent that in? Why do you care? Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Stuart Moncure? Moncure. Some random no. from Nevada? I'm no. sorry. Stuart Moncure. Thank you. He should know by now. By now, after all these times. Stuart's so, name. So, so you were... Uh, uh, our, our buddy Norman. Yes. Who has a book out. It was a New York Times bestseller called Crazy for the Storm. Yes. Norman, who basically is how we know each other. Yes. Because Norman and I were in film school together, and you knew Norman through the star of the movie, and I was the AD on the film, and next thing we knew, we were all schlepping sea stands onto El Toro Beach somewhere north of Malibu. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, and the star of the film was having screen sex with the with the woman who was in um, uh, yeah you know what what what's it, it's uh what's the show uh, it's I'm uh, not bailing you out it, what's it, it called it, come on it, what's her name military the jag. military jag yes the we, woman who stars we, in jag we covered like 750 series. <laughs> On DVD of Jag, and you couldn't remember Jag. I Kathy mean, Bell. Season, was, like, we, we, it was what, three weeks ago we covered season 77. And, and <laughs> I can Yes, Kathy Bell starred in Jag, uh, started in our movie and in Jag. Anyway, so Norman's got a book out, Crazy for the Storm, which is a New York Times bestseller, yes. LA Times bestseller. Yeah. He made it into a movie. It's, it's out to everybody. It's unbelievable. Warner Brothers. So uh, he threw a party the other day. So I, 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 I'm at this party, right? Yeah. And by the way, Zach, who starred in the film, was also at the party. Of course. You know, we've all known each other over sure. the years. So um, I'm at this party eating the, uh, the turkey burger with, Fren- sure. with French mustard from the French market on Abercrombie. Very nice. Very nice. And, uh, you know, I got the party. And then uh, the next night, going out on a date, set up, you know, family set up. Very excited about this family set up. Very attractive girl. Looking forward to meeting her. Sure. So I'm at this party eating my turkey burger. And I kind of feel my face. I feel... My face feels kind of numb, right? Yeah. So I'm like, wow, what is going on with my face? It feels kind of numb. And then I wait another 10 minutes, talk to my friends, and I feel my face again. And now I'm freaking out because my face, it's like right around it's the on cheek. Fire. It just feels not like it feels like nothing. So I go into the bathroom to look at my face, and my face has swollen. This half of my face has swollen. Yeah. Like the size of a cantaloupe. Mm-hmm. And I completely flip out because I don't know what's happening. Is it some? Am I? I'm, I'm not allergic to anything. Is it something I ate? Uh, this this may be the best story you've ever told on the show because I have no idea where this is going, and I'm trying to think of jokes, but you keep coming up with something that's funnier. So keep going. 
Well, and so I'm, I, I become incredibly self-conscious. Okay. Because well, by nature... As, 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 as I would assume you would at a party, you, your face is the size of a cantaloupe. So go on. So uh, as you may have noticed over the years, I'm a bit neurotic. Yes. So here I am with, my, with, with just this one little half of my face and the size of a cantaloupe. But here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking uh, if I leave the party... Mm-hmm. It will look as if I left because my face was the size of a cantaloupe. Right. But if I don't leave the party, then people might stare at me and say, how come that guy came in looking normal, but now he has to face the size of a cantaloupe? This is a Woody Allen movie from 1976. This is why, this is why I am who I am. Yeah. So, and of course, I'm also thinking about the fact that I have a date the next night, and okay. I might have to cancel it because my face looks like the size of a cantaloupe. All right. So... Um, People start noticing that I look a little strange, that I'm looking a little uh, freaked out. Like, Mark, what's the problem? Yeah. And I go, look at my face. I'm like, look at my face. Does my face look strange to you? And they say, no, it looks fine. He goes, my face is swollen. This half of my face. And they, my one friend says, no, you, you look fine to me. And, and here's what I think. Yeah. There's, there's two reactions to, no, you look fine. It either means I'm overreacting mm. or... I'm so normally ugly that when my face is swollen, it's really no more ugly than I already am. Oh, that's brilliant. So I don't know how to react to that when they say, no, you look fine. And then eventually I get a couple people staring at me, right, like I'm some sort of an alien, eventually admitting, yes, your face does look swollen. So I'm sort of body language-wise, I'm sort of hanging back from the rest of the yeah. party because I just don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Again, if I leave, it look like I left because I'm embarrassed. If I stay, I could, get, you know, I could uh, be stared at like the elephant man. So I decided to stay. Stay for the whole thing. Sure. And uh, I went to sleep, woke okay. up the next morning. My face was still puffy, but it was gone. I mean, not gone. It was still puffy, but it was still there about 50%. Right. And now it's the day after that. And Wade, look at my face. How do I look? You, you, you look just as ugly as you've ever looked. I can't believe when when they say I, uh, when they say uh, so, oh you, you you look fine so you're saying I'm always that hideous so what you're telling me is there's still no resolution to this mystery swelling no uh, Norman the author yes. of the book Crazy for the Storm yes. terrific book got to go buy it got it an amazing nonfiction account of survival and dramatic the whole thing yeah uh, Norman said maybe it was like an insect bite. Because he, he lives in Venice, California, yeah. where there's all sorts of uh, mosquitoes and foliage yeah, but, and whatever. But Norman, Norman's also, you know, he's, a, he's gone surfing in the hinterlands of the world and skiing in the netherlands of, you know, wherever. And he, he knows all about weird, inclement, kind of tropical things. I, it just was bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, and then I did go out with a girl. But it was funny, so I, I go out with this girl the other night, right? And then she started swelling. <laughs> and not in her face. And, and oh, no, here's what I started swelling, like that scene in Outland, the Sean Connery film. When, totally. When, when the, the guy's head explodes. Head explodes. Yeah, that was awesome. me. Yeah, okay. That was me. Cool. So here's what I do. So I, I'm sitting at the bar, right? Mm-hmm. I, I got there first. So I'm at the bar. And I realized that my positioning at the bar would require that she sits to my left. So if she sits to my left, that means she'll be staring at my now half cantaloupe face. So I take myself and my drink before she arrives, and I move it to the left. So now she must sit on my right so okay. that she can be there for my non-cantaloupe side of my face. So that's what happened. All right. I don't know how we got into that. I oh, uh, by Norman's book. That's how we got into that. That's how we or got see it. the movie, which hopefully will be made by Warner Brothers. Well, meanwhile, we got other movies to talk about, movies that have been made. Uh, we, don't, we don't give enough attention to uh, straight-to-video stuff, but I want, there are some really interesting straight-to-video titles that I do want to kind of throw some, uh, throw some light on. Uh, because of some of the people in them. Got a little thriller here from uh, MTI called Fatal Secrets. That is no coincidence that the word fatal is in the title. They want you to uh, draw comparisons to Fatal Attraction. 
Um, it's not quite Fatal Attraction, not quite the same story, but it's a it's it's similarly constructed as a thriller. Um, Do you want to know what this film was originally called, by the way? What was, Fatal Secrets? Yes. What was the original? Not title? the original title. Really? Get this. Huh. Called Balancing the Books. Balancing the Books. It was yeah. Called Balancing Fatal, the Books. Fatal Secrets is better. But yeah, but how how many films can you call Fatal Secrets? Except in this case, it's you know a gen. It's like a gen, somewhat of a gender switch on Fatal Attraction. It's a woman and there's a man and anyway. But uh, I you know what it's it's not great, but it's not terrible and it's got an interesting cast. It's got Ed Begley Jr. Uh, he's uh, driving around in a Prius. No, I'm kidding. That's not fair. Uh, Leah Thompson's in this. We've all been wondering where has Leah Thompson been? She's making movies like this. <laughs> And uh, Dina Mayer's in it. Dina Mayer was from uh, Starship Troopers. Vincent Spano. Yeah. I love Vincent Spano. Made a lot of great movies in the 80s. He really did. Like, Ernie Hudson. Uh, Vincent and Ernie Hudson. That's where I was going to get to. Vincent Spano, remember in uh, City of Hope, John Sayles. Loved yes. him. Yes. And Ernie Hudson, of course, who uh, gave the only real performance in The Human Tornado, the uh, sequel to Dolomite, the Rudy Ray Moore film. He wasn't going by Ernie Hudson. He was going by... Uh, a, a, it was like, Ernest Hudson or it was something? Like, yeah, something like that. But uh, there's a point in the film where his brother in the film dies, and he had, like really emotes. He's really acting, and it feels weird because everyone else in the movie is, is just... They're just along for uh, Rudy Ray Moore's raunchiness. So that's Fatal Secrets. Uh, we also have Chicago Overcoat, which has uh, Frank Vincent and uh, Armand Asante basically doing their routine gangster stuff. Um, nothing spectacular here, but it, you know some decent actors. <laughs> what? It's like you, you you look at the uh, DVD cover, you see Frank Vincent holding like a Tommy gun. Yeah, exactly. I mean, come on, how cliched is that? I mean, you know, poor look, guy. You know what? Look, that's what he does, and he knows that Frank Vincent has played that character in just about every movie he's ever made. So if you like him, there you go. Uh, and then uh, we got this weird freaking animated thing called Gene Fusion, Gene hyphen Fusion, which is not my kind of animation. But uh, it, look, for something that, uh, it, you know, this is for independent CGI animation, it ain't bad. It takes place in the year 2310 and uh, kind of, you know, try, it tries to use this um, this futuristic... Well, there's like these specially trained it's a, athletes. It's a game. It's like a, yeah. it, it reminds me a little bit of the game that they used to play on Battlestar Galactica, which was a little bit like oh, um, God damn it! It was a little bit like like a, an octagonal version of handball or okay. Well, I, I, it. ignore Wade. It's all about these specially trained athletes and their DNA is they, they take like the DNA of animals. Yes, like whatever three four types of animals they combine the DNA and inject into these super athletes and they play this game. Fine. It's not my cup of tea, but, you know. Uh, and then we got a thing called Mad World. This is from a new distributor, actually, uh, Breaking Glass Pictures. I go, we got a few uh, stuff of theirs. I want to give them a little shout-out because it's always nice to have a new distributor on the block who's going to go out and, uh, you know, peddle some movies that uh, others might not. Um, Mad World is from a filmmaker named Corey Cataldo, and this is actually um, an interesting, well, kind of a scary film in, in a lot of respects. It's funny, but in that kind of where you laugh even while you're kind of freaking out way. Uh, it's not. I wouldn't call it a dark comedy. I'd call it a very dark comedy. But uh, it's um, it's worth watching. It definitely is. I'm surprised this hasn't gotten more exposure at festivals. It's uh, well, it's, it's especially in the world of like bullies, because in, in the movie it's about these it, these well, that, misfit teens. Like one of them is fat. And he's got a, a crazy father. But there, there's almost like a. 
Well, I'll, I'll put it this way, and I say this only because I saw a film that I have to talk about on radio this week, uh, which is Beautiful Boy. Have you heard about Beautiful Boy? Yes, I have. Okay. And then there's, of course, the new uh, uh, Lynn uh, Ramsey film with Tilda Swinton at Cannes, which is very much a similar thing. And these are all movies about parents dealing with children who are involved in school shootings. And there's a lot of that in this as well, which I don't want to get into, but it, it kind of makes it, – it, it gives you – a sense that all of these filmmakers are kind of orbiting the same concerns, which is that parents are losing control of their kids, and sometimes the parents are more dangerous than the kids. And it's a, you know, it's about the deterioration of the American cultural fabric. Did I go too far on that? It's beautiful. Man. It's so beautiful. It's a trenchant insight. There it is. And then also from Breaking Glass is a film called uh, Ninjas vs. Vampires. Hang on, let me let me guess uh, let me guess what it's about. That one it's doesn't about even need a werewolves and aliens. Yeah. I'll, <laughs> you know, when you name your movie Ninjas versus Vampires, I don't even need to review it. Well, you know, our, our, our friend Zach, who we just talked about at Norman's yeah. Party, our friend Zach directed a film. Zach's a terrific director. He's directed two films. But one of them is called uh, Amazons and Gladiators. Yes. And There you go. There you go. Same deal. It's about Amazons and Gladiators. Um, so the question is just how good is it? I'll tell you, the ninja stuff is better than the vampire stuff. But it's ninjas versus vampires. That's literally what it is. And uh, for a low-budget film, not bad. It, yeah, but it's all that... You know what? I have to say, all that digitally shot stuff, I yeah. just don't like digitally shot movies. There's something so camcorder about them. So camcorder. Really? I mean, nowadays, you have like the high-end digital by, stuff, but if you're still by working... By the way, there's, the, a new, there's a new Sony camcorder that's $19,000. I'm just saying. Buy it's two. It's a $19,000 camcorder. Why buy one? Buy two. Uh, and then we got a thing here from uh, Phase 4, Forget Me Not. Now, you know from that title, that's going to be creepy thriller stuff. And uh, this is being released just in time for people to freak out at their graduations. Because, hey, this takes place during a graduation weekend as well. The uh, class president from the high school, uh-oh, her friends start vanishing. What? Yeah. And then it gets into supernatural territory, and it's it, and then it kind of gets silly. But uh, you know what? Uh, for kids who, who want something that kind of ties in with uh, high school graduation, why not? And then also from Breaking Glass uh, is a film that I am thrilled that they're releasing, because I think this is a real coup for them. This is Cropsy. And uh, I talked about this on uh, Film Week back when it was released theatrically. This is a really, really interesting film. It's It's kind of I mean it's a documentary but it's it's like more than a documentary you see there's this legend on Staten Island about a guy who was an escaped mental patient and there's this abandoned by the way the, the, like the mental institution on Staten Island you know it's like it's like ruins it's a, this abandoned structure it's like Shelter Island it's like Shelter Island exactly. or Shutter Island whatever. yeah yeah exactly and um, so this, the legend of this guy, Cropsy, was this guy who, would, you know, like children would vanish. And Cropsy was a guy that lived in the ruins of the mental institution. And he would, he would kidnap children. And he was, like, allegedly still active. I mean, it's, it's complete, complete urban myth and urban legend. But No, 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 um, no. It's Staten Island. Staten Island is like this weird inbred borough that, like, I just think that strange, you know, alien people live. Well, my, my, my grandmother's buried in Staten Island, so I go out to visit her. And uh, uh, Staten Island is creepy. Well, here's the thing. So there were kids in Staten Island that really did disappear. So in the process of sort of examining this, this uh, Cropsy story, they wind up kind of getting into the story of a guy who really is kind of like the real-life Cropsy, Andre Rand, and um, who was basically, you know, kind of uh, arrested for some of these abductions. 
And it's a it's a really interesting film, the way that all of this kind of weaves together, very unconventional by documentary or even quasi-documentary standards. Um, and it's got bonus footage, and uh, it's it's really definitely worth watching. I, uh, I I just cannot recommend it highly enough, and that's a great way to launch a, a company. So there, there you go for Breaking Glass. Shout out to Breaking Glass. By the way, Breaking Glass, I'm just going to say this, put yeah. it out there right now, Breaking Glass quite a good um, album by this um, is unrelated to anything isn't huh? it I, I, I disagree yeah. I believe Breaking Glass is a very good album by Billy Joel and you know a lot of people are saying oh CDs are dead but you know what there are, are still there are still people who are putting out not just CDs but combination CD and DVD sets and one of them God bless them they are throwbacks Twisted Sister baby there you go God. Uh, the DVD here is the 1982 Reading Festival and uh, the CD has uh, 14 tracks on it. And uh, there's great stuff on here, What You Don't Know, Sin After Sin, Shoot Em Down, Tear It Loose, uh, Run For Your Life. It's, uh, you know, I, I like Twisted Sister. D. Snyder, rock on. He's my man. I'll take him over like Ted Nugent. I'll, and I'll take him over, uh, uh, what's his name, the, the guy that uh, keeps doing all the, uh, the remakes. The remakes, yeah. The guy that the guy. Oh, that, Rob Zombie. Yeah, Rob Zombie. The guy that looks like uh, John Travolta in uh, in the L. Ron Hubbard movie, <laughs> right? You, you love on. that movie. Oh gosh, dreadful, horrible. So anyway, uh, that's that for a little, uh, a few really cool indies. Uh, let's let's jump into so, okay, TV foreign or regular. Well, let's do regular. We we wasted you you wasted half the show with all that uh, DVD crap. No one's going to see that straight okay, to DVD stuff. Fine, bitch at us about uh, Dario Argento. Uh, you know what? Actually, before you get into that, I want to—I'll—I'll uh, I'll give you Dario Gento in a minute, but I want to uh, do a shout out here for another concert thing. Uh, this is a music care tribute to Neil Young. It's on Blu-ray and on DVD, and uh, I am not a Neil Young fan. I—I I think Neil Young is a guy who was very fortunate to have what? been. Well, look, here's the thing. I think he's a good songwriter. And Gee, I think, thanks, Wade. And I think I think being uh, kind of in the mix with uh, those other three guys helped his career. You know, yeah, the, the, those guys, uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, those, three, right. those three dudes, right? <laughs> those three hacks. Those three hacks. I think, I think they cut, but eventually, you know, it was just Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and they kind of lost him because he had a voice like this. Not, not a good Rock voice. and roll doesn't, the thing, is, the thing with rock and roll is that rock and roll, the greatness think and its about, failure is that it does, not, it's not, it does not require good singers. Well, here's the thing. Rockin' in the Free World here, sung by Keith Urban, John Fogarty, and Booker T. Jones. All right. Forget Keith Urban, but John Fogarty's you, cool. But you realize what a great song that is. When suddenly it's not keep on rocking in the free world. Suddenly, when you have like real people doing it, you go, "Oh my gosh! Why? Why doesn't everybody just redo Neil Young stuff?" And that's what they do here, including Crosby, Stills and Nash, who do Human Highway, and it's great. Uh, Elton John, Leon Russell, Nico Case, Cheryl Crow doing Helpless, Ben Harper doing Ohio. Nora, Those, uh, Helpless is a great song. Nora Jones doing Tell Me Why. He's a great song. Jackson Brown doing Don't Let Me Bring uh, Don't Let It Bring You Down. Jackson Brown's cool. Uh, Elvis Costello, uh, When You're on the Losing End, uh, James Taylor doing Heart of Gold. I mean, this is amazing. Dave Matthews doing The Needle and the Damage Done. This is great. This is terrific. So, um, you know, I, 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 this is the best of both worlds. If you, if you like Neil Young's music but don't like him as a singer, bang, this is it. This is for you. Get the Blu-ray. Blu-ray is terrific. Uh, concerts just do not get better than Blu-ray. And uh, that is, as I've said before, more for the audio than for the picture. So get this. A Music Hairs tribute to Neil Young. Absolutely awesome. Love it. Oh, wait. All right, Mark, tell us about Dario and his 
idiotic obsessions. Well, I don't like Dario Argento, the uh, Italian giallo uh, auteur. Yeah. And uh, from 1971, we have uh, The Cat and Nine Tales. Now, this one is uh, stars Carl Malden. Now, there's very few films where Carl Malden gets to play a um, uh, like a blind composer. Uh-huh. Uh, but yet he does. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Carl, it's all... I, you know, it's just whatever. <laughs> Dario. Dario. And, 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 of course, if it's Dario Argento, it also has to star James Franciscus. Yeah. <laughs> How many Argento films starred James? Did, 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 did Franciscus live in Italy or something? I don't I, understand I, I, why he's in all of his movies. I don't either. I, I think at a certain point, like a lot of American actors, his career just kind of started to tank, and his agent said, you know what? Uh, it's, it's like a, like basketball players, right? When your you career go, starts going you go down, to Italy? you go to Italy. Yeah. Anyway, it's about there's a, there's a, uh, it's a, a bunch of grisly murders, and someone's got to figure it out, and nobody cares. I just don't like Argento, and um, so I'm prejudiced in that sense. But it is a good-looking Blu-ray because it comes from Blue Underground, and I do I want to be fair to Blue Underground. Because it is. They, you know, this is actually kind of an old film. It's from 71, but it, doesn't, it looks good Blue, on Blu-ray, actually. Blue Underground Blu-ray is – we, we, may, we may not be fond of the film, but we've got to say this about Blue Underground. They, um, if you are a fan of their cult films, that, and, and they do all cult stuff. I mean, that's what Blue Underground does. Um, they are a terrific independent house. They really have set a standard for taking old movies that have no business looking good on Blu-ray and just kicking them up an extra notch. And uh, they, they do that to this as well. I, whatever they're doing, there are about a dozen other companies out there that should, should consult with them and find out what they're doing right because uh, nobody has... If Blue, if, if Blue Underground is doing Blu-rays that look this good, nobody else has any excuse to have Blu-rays that look bad. Period. That's how I feel about it. And there you go. And that's my opinion. So, wait, how do you feel about it? That's it. Got a couple of John Wayne movies on Blu-ray here from Paramount, which do not look as good as the, uh, the Blue Underground that I just mentioned, the Dario. Uh, there's Big Jake and Rio Lobo. Now, um, these are both later-ish Wayne movies, and uh, Big Jake is... Uh, I just don't know. Uh, this, is, this is really kind of lesser Wayne, but it's one that a lot of people love, and I have had conversations over the years many times with people who just love Big Jake. And I'm not quite sure why. Uh, I think it's because it's like the last great John Wayne, Maureen O'Hara pairing, and uh, somehow there's a certain nostalgia to it. But, um, you know, it's just it's standard John Wayne, Western frontier stuff, and I think really super formulaic and cliched. Uh, and then from 1970 is another lesser Wayne, Rio Lobo. This is John Wayne realizing that he now has his Oscar, so he's just going to float through all this stuff. And uh, here, you know, whatever. It's, you know, they, they, they want to, there's some guys that want to rob a train. And, uh, boy, Wayne's got to stop him. Wow, Wayne. Can you sound more enthusiastic about yeah, that? Yeah, I know, right? It's, uh, anyway. The sad thing here is that Howard Hawks was also uh, on his way down. Howard Hawks directed this, and it just, ah. Uh, it's just sad. You watch John Wayne, you watch Howard Hawks behind, and, and it just doesn't, you know, by this time you've had the Wild Bunch, and it, this feels like just a, it, like a shadow of the Wild Bunch. It just doesn't, anyway. Uh, but you know what is good about this? Jerry Goldsmith's music. Great Jerry Goldsmith score. Terrific Jerry Goldsmith score. But I'm, you know, real. I'm sure a lot of people love Rio Lobo. But. And then also, uh, as long as we're talking about Westerns, um, this is also from Paramount. This is a better-looking Blu-ray. Somehow the, the monkeys who run the machine 
did a better job with this than on the two Wayne films. This is A Man Called Horus, Richard Harris, which uh, is still a really, really great movie. Uh, uh, it just, you know, there are a, a lot of these movies about um, guys who go native. We've had a lot of them, right? Nick Nolte. Dances uh, with Wolves. Dances with Wolves is one of them. Uh, Nick, well, Avatar is one of them, for crying out loud. Uh, you know, there have been at least 20 or 30 of them over the last 40 years. Seem to get one every single year. And, uh, and the New World is almost a little bit of that. But uh, I'll tell you, Richard Harris is terrific. This is the original, the one and only. This is the one that just really gets under your skin. Terrific music by Leonard Rosenman, who was a big composer in the 70s. Ooh, I don't like him. Well, he did a Star Trek movie. He did I know. Star he, Trek he, Six, right? No, he was Oscar nominated for Star Trek Four, which is like the dumbest score ever. But he won an Oscar for the adapted score for uh, Barry Lyndon. Yeah, that's true. This is great music. Uh, anyway, I, I met Leonard Rosenman. You know that he's a really nice guy. Well, he wrote a lousy Star Trek score that he nominated yeah. for an Oscar. You know what? They, they probably gave it to him because it's Leonard Rosenman. I'm sure. He, I'm sure they did. But anyway, uh, Richard Harris, man, it's just and and they they creep you out. It's the one thing everybody remembers about this is the the nipple hanging deal, and uh, there it is, right on the cover. Ouch! Ouch! Oh, Wade. Uh, the Firm is on Blu-ray. The Firm is the uh, Sidney Pollack film from 1993. Stars Tom Cruise. He plays a uh, young idealistic uh, lawyer who gets hired uh, hired by this uh, highfalutin firm, and the highfalutin firm has secrets. Now, uh, Pollock had just come off of Havana, which was kind of his biggest flop at the time with Robert Redford. And, you know, he takes a uh, Michael Crichton book, or was it Michael, it was Michael Crichton, right? He ta- uh, John Grisham. Grisham, yeah, the other yeah, guy. Yeah. Uh, he takes a Grisham book, and, you know, uh, Pollock puts spit and polish on it, and it's slick, and it's total good, old-fashioned, Hollywood, high-budget filmmaking. Except for the fact that it has... One of the worst scores ever written for a movie. Really? Yes. But because Sidney Pollack cannot possibly bring himself to uh, to because he's he's like he's such good friends with uh, what's Dave Grusin. Dave Grusin, uh, that he just can't bring himself to hire anybody else to write a score. And Grusin's music in this movie is just like it. Like Tom Cruise is running for his life. He's running for his life. W- any composer worth their salt would give you dun 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 dun. That kind of stuff, right? It, it, it's standard. It's what you do. That's the cue that goes. He's running for his life. Grusin is like giving you a little evening of jazz piano. Blinky blink, blinky blinky blink blink. And I remember sitting in the theater just thinking, "What? Really? This is what? How, how does this music work in any way, shape, or form?" Well, actually, it turns out that you know who ghost wrote that score, Clint Eastwood. Yeah, <laughs> you know what? Not not far off. Uh, okay, it's Kubrick time, people. We've been talking a lot about Stanley Kubrick lately, partly because um, when you talk about Terrence Malick and the Tree of Life, uh, which is very 2001-ish in many respects, you just can't, everybody's talking about Kubrick. It's like Malick has resurrected Kubrick by being equally obsessive and reclusive and brilliant. See, but here's my theory, though. I don't really think that Stanley Kubrick was... Uh, was a recluse. No, he wasn't. I think he was just a normal guy that just did his thing. That's it. I think Malik is a recluse. No, Malik is a normal guy that just does his thing. He just doesn't like to leave Austin. He makes his movies, and, uh, you know, that's it. Yeah, but, I mean, he also... Malik also didn't go to Cannes to promote... He went to Cannes, but he, he didn't... Do you think Kubrick would have gone to Cannes? No. No. <laughs> Why? They just want to make their movies and be satisfied with the result, which I really respect, you know? Right. Uh I mean, why would Malik go to Cannes and open himself up to be pestered with questions and to go to press conferences and walk around? It's like that. People hate that stuff. They really do. Some filmmakers like it. They like being oogled over. But 
He's not one of those guys. He's a philosophy professor. Give him a break. Anyway, uh, we're going to get some more of the Kubrick films. You know, they're releasing the giant Blu-ray megalithic mono. I bought it. I actually spent my own money on it. Does it come in a monolith? It comes yeah. in a life-size monolith, I, I heard. <laughs> like they actually deliver the monolith to your house. It just like lands on top of my condo yeah. building and crushes everybody inside. Yeah. But uh, what they have sent us initially, and, and most of the films in the set have been on Blu-ray before. It's, you know, it's like Lolita and Barry Lyndon and Clockwork Orange. Those are the, 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 new, the new ones. And uh, the Clockwork Orange set, which they did send us separately, this is the anniversary edition, uh, on Blu-ray is quite impressive. Now, we've got some listener mail we're going to read later, one of which deals with a Kubrick question, which I'm going to let Mark attempt to answer, but it is almost the unanswerable question because Mark and I have been going around and around and around on the, uh, the aspect ratio issue for weeks now, and it's so <laughs> frustrating. Um, it confuses everyone. Uh, but anyway, this is two discs, and uh, the uh, first one, the, 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 the dazzling Blu-ray transfer of the movie, uh, is really, really impressive, and you've got to, I mean, it's just, you know, this is not an easy movie to put on a Blu-ray, because it has that 70s look, that gritty look, some of it was even shot 16 millimeter, and uh, they did a great job. They preserved the essence of it while giving it that high-def sheen, it's a fantastic effort. Uh, Malcolm McDowell uh, does a little retrospective thing on this and we got a we also have another DVD we're going to talk about in a second which is all Malcolm McDowell and um, then you've got a commentary by Malcolm McDowell and historian Nick Redman which is very good and a Channel 4 documentary called Still Tickin' The Return of Clockwork Orange now what's interesting is you know Clockwork Orange was banned in the UK for a long time so you know this is this is the this is what you should be getting. This is a Channel Four documentary. It really really gets inside this film because this is almost there's almost a mystique about this film in the UK that uh, it doesn't have elsewhere, mainly because it's you know it was shot in England and uh, it's an all British cast. Uh, and then uh, a featurette called "Great Bolshie Yakerblockos Making a Clockwork Orange," which is fine. And then on uh, disc two, which is the uh, 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 you know the, the super bonus disc, you get uh, the Stanley Kubrick Life in Pictures, which has been around forever. It's a great documentary on uh, Kubrick's uh, life and career. And then Oh Lucky Malcolm, which is the feature length career profile of Malcolm McDowell, um, which was directed by Jan Harlan. Now, you know uh, Malcolm McDowell killed Captain Kirk. What do you mean? He killed Captain Kirk. Oh, he did, didn't he? In Star Trek Generations, one of the worst Star Trek films, where Kirk's dying words were, it was fun. Right before he dies, it was fun. Awesome. Really? 40 years of Captain Kirk, and that, that's what you go out on? It was fun. Why not? And then lastly, we have this, uh, this thing that was actually in the um, official selection of the Cannes Film Festival four years ago. It is Never Apologize, as long as we're on the subject of Malcolm McDowell. And uh, you know what? I just love Malcolm McDowell. He can be a real SOB and, uh, and really difficult, as a lot of people who have worked with him will testify. But um, this... I went to a birthday party with him. I didn't well, go with him, but well, he was at is... a birthday party I was at. This is actually, this is not a Kubrick-centric thing. It, I'm just segueing into this. This is actually about Lindsay Anderson. And uh, Malcolm McDowell, of course, pretty much owes his career to Lindsay Anderson. And um, this, is, this is actually a really, really fascinating uh, tribute from a guy who is just not prone to laying out tributes. Now, Malcolm McDowell did show up to our Lafka dinner once. Were you in the group when he came? No. He accepted the uh, the Career Achievement Award for Robert Altman. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. 
year that Altman uh, didn't show up. But he is, uh, you know what, he is charming, but he is a fiery SOB. And um, that comes through in his performances. So anyway, if you love Lindsay Anderson, if you love Malcolm McDowell, definitely check out Never Apologize. It is a one-of-a-kind documentary tribute to a very great filmmaker featuring an amazing actor. If it's a great movie. If it's a terrific movie. Um... Let's see what else we got here. Uh, I will unleash Mark in a second to uh, pay tribute to George Lucas while I give you another yet another Western this week. Uh, this is a very, very good Blu-ray release from Paramount of Once Upon a Time in the West. Now, uh, <gasps> yes, this has both versions on it. Yes, the, uh, you know, the, the restored and the theatrical version, both of them. Uh, both very good. Maybe Sergio Leone's best film. Once Upon a Time in America, pretty close. I, I like this one. I think this is it. The opening to this movie oh, is just, it's wonderful. It is like pure cinema. It's just pure cinema. It's, it, there's no dialogue. It just introduces all the characters. It gives you the scope of the West, that Ennio Morricone music, the sweeping camera moves. I mean, Also, it a, like Henry Fonda as a villain. Oh, gosh, he's so evil. Like those, big, like those like baby blue Henry. Like at, yeah. at the time, casting yeah. Henry Fonda as a villain was like... It was, it was, it was daring. A, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. And Woody Strode sitting there with the water dripping on his hat. Yeah. I mean, this is a great opening. This may be one of the greatest openings of any movie ever. It is pure cinema. And you get it for the first time on Blu-ray. I personally think Paramount could have done a better job with the transfer of this Blu-ray. However, I'm not going to be really nitpicky about it. There, I mean, there are a few little artifacty things and some color issues that I could really nitpick about, but it's only because I know the opening so incredibly well. And Claudia Cardinale, I, you know, it's just the most ravishing thing on the planet. Um, you get an amazing commentary here. Now, it's not a kind of a comprehensive commentary, but <clears throat> you get people weighing in here who all revere this film, including John Carpenter, Alex Cox, John Milius, uh, and a host of uh, film historians. It's really terrific. And then a lot of featurettes, which are adequate. But ultimately, you're getting this for the movie, and uh, I'm thrilled they gave it a PG-13 and not an R. Get it! Blu-ray, Once Upon a Time in the West, for crying out loud. It is super cool. Love it! Yes. Um, speaking of things that we love... Uh, American Graffiti is now out on Blu-ray. There's a new edition of American Graffiti. This includes a video commentary by George Lucas. Blah, 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 blah. The, the director. Now, um, for those who have never we, seen we hate We hate him, you know. I know, we kind of do. Yeah, have you seen that thing on YouTube? Not to derail this, but that thing on YouTube where there, were, there was like some kind of a concert festival and, and there's like a dancing rock out moment where a bunch of people dressed as Star Wars characters on stage. They yeah, I out. saw that. Like like this like like welcome to the jungle. Chewbacca comes out with an Axl Rose head head scarf and uh, and, and like was... dances to what 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 is he? How would Lucas even license that? Oh yeah, you can take my characters and have them like embarrass themselves. Hey. Suddenly Rob Lowe uh, dancing with Snow White feels okay. I thought it was funny. Terrible. Anyway, American Graffiti, nineteen seventy three. It's all about the uh, you know the post war cruising teenage cruising culture of the uh, post World War Two era. Let, let's put it this way: yes. Happy Days was the unholy television spawn of American Graffiti and the Lords of Flatbush. Simple. Well, okay, wait. Now, for, for people who go American Graffiti, who cares? Nineteen seventy three, uh, post war yeah. kids cruising in the fifties. What a stupid movie. I have I have a couple things to say. Yes. First of all, here's the cast. Maybe you've heard of some of these people. A few. Richard Dreyfuss, Ron Howard, mm -hmm. Harrison Ford, Suzanne Somers, mm -hmm. Wolfman Jack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, my God. This is a terrific film. And, uh, you know, it was done. He did this. Uh, Lucas did this after uh, THX 1138. In fact, I, I, the story goes is that he uh, he did it because Coppola, Francis Ford Coppola, had challenged Lucas to write a mainstream film after he did THX, which, of course, is this crazy dystopian science fiction craziness. And uh, he did it. It was fantastic, and it's got great music and a great cast, and it's really well done. And then after that, Lucas would go on to uh, kill us all. Yeah, pretty much. He 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 he, he wanted to make our dreams and then destroy our dreams. And I don't know why he would do that. I, I keep listening to the Patton Oswalt uh, bit about killing George Lucas with a shovel, and there's so much there's so much honesty in that. Um, but anyway, you know that honestly, the picture in picture video commentary with George Lucas, I, it makes me want to kill him. It just does. Actually, the, the, the commentary is really uh, from his goiter. <laughs> you know, he's worth a billion dollars. Get that thing fixed. Seriously. It's like this big flabby jowl. What's wrong with you? All right. Um, you know what else is out this week, Mark? Platoon. Platoon. Platin. 25th anniversary <laughs> on Blu-ray. Of Platin? Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I still think, you know, I'm, I'm forever bitter because this movie went on to win Best Picture and so forth and so on. And uh, it... it it, that's the Oscar that should have been Full Metal Jackets. But as soon as he heard that Kubrick was making a Vietnam movie, he rushed Platoon into production, that Oliver Stone guy. Uh, you know what? The, the only things I don't really like about Platoon is how kind of it, it's got the good sergeant and the bad sergeant. Oh, if the Terrence bad Malick had directed this film, you'd be like, he, oh, he, the good sergeant represents purity. No, the, no but they, he wouldn't have put scars all over uh, all over his face. It's just it's no, no, look. Tom no, Berenger looks looks like he, he got caught in a bear trap in this movie. It's so silly. Nobody ever uh, nobody ever said that Oliver Stone was a subtle director. That's true. I wish he had been. Anyway, won four Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Director. And uh, it's Oliver Stone casting Charlie Sheen as, as himself and uh, kind of telling the story of his Vietnam experience, which I, you know, the film holds up relatively well. It's, it does have some good moments in it. It does have some good stuff. So you have uh, a very, very, very good Blu-ray transfer along with uh, an Oliver Stone commentary and a Dale Dye commentary. Dale Dye, of course, is the guy who does all these military... You know, he's been he does a, all of them. All of them. He's been the military advisor for a dozen films, and he does all these commentaries, and, he, and he's good. Uh, you know, the uh, Stone also does commentary on some of the deleted scenes, and then you've got a bunch of little documentaries and featurettes, exactly what you would expect. Uh, it's perfectly fine. Uh, transfer, very good, but Stone, you know, his commentaries are rambling like he is. <laughs> they are. They're just, they're just rambling. Around. Don't you find it weird that, like, the only Oliver Stone film that wasn't, like, Oliver Stoney was uh, World Trade Center? Like, when you heard that Oliver Stone was going to direct a 9-11 film, like, oh, my God, it's going to be conspiracies everywhere. And, and, you know, I was hating his film so viciously for so long. He was just so, like, really infuriating me because his movies were, like, like, not to be graphic, but every time I went to see an Oliver Stone movie, it was like somebody was screaming and then pissing in my face. And it's like, really, why are you treating me this way? Why are you treating me this way? And uh, then I realized he's just, he's just an angry man, and I met his mom when I worked at Air France, and it all made sense. Everything kind of came together, and I started to kind of feel sorry for him. And, uh, yeah, but uh, so anyway, there he is. He's Oliver Stone. That's who he is. Uh, now, another Vietnam movie, also out on Blu-ray, Joel Schumacher's Tiger Land, which is the movie that introduced Colin Farrell to the world, and he is great in it. Uh, really, I look at this in hindsight, and I'm like, Wow, this had a great cast. Cool. It was it was a bit of a return to form, also for Schumacher. Very much. Well, you know, it was low budget. It was gritty. No, no special effects. No big mega stars. Although now that you know Colin Farrell's a big deal, and 
Clifton Collins is a you know well known good actor, and Cole Hauser is a you know real good actor, like his father Wings Hauser, who uh, does a lot of uh, AFM specials. <laughs> I always love pointing that out because Wings Hauser is just he's he's he plays all he does is like make sword and sorcery movies and just play evil villains. I know Wings Hauser, what a great name. No, this is a this is a little bit more like uh, Full Metal Jacket, actually. Um, it's um, you know a couple of guys getting ready to go to Vietnam, and uh, it's a kind of a boot camp story. But Colin Farrell is so incredibly good. It's so well shot, very low budget, you know, handheld camera, very gritty. Uh, really, just proves that Joel Schumacher can make real movies when he wants to. Uh, he's a great guy. He just makes a lot of studio hackery. But um, this is a terrific little movie. Really good. Really good. It is and, good. And uh, they kept the gritty look on Blu-ray, which is nice. You know, the uh, Fox kind of makes crappy transfers every once in a while. And I think in this case, they didn't necessarily try to do a good transfer. I think it just worked out. <laughs> so the, the, uh, the crappiness of the transfer informs yes. the style of the film. Precisely. It, it uh, honors the style of the film. Precisely. So, uh, shall we do... Yeah, like three of those. Yeah, there you go. But then give me American Graffiti too. Uh, it, we'll, 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 we'll divvy this after the show, won't we? That never works out in my favor. I know. Uh, you know, uh, let me knock off it. Well, let's see. Uh, what? TV, yeah, uh, what? Do, do that TV stuff. You know, um, Adult Swim uh, has a new show called Children's Hospital. And uh, obviously they don't think much of its uh, DVD potential because they've released the first and second seasons on DVD. Not, not the first season and then the second season. Not half of the first season, then half of the first season, then half of the second season, then the other half of the second season, the first and second season on DVD. And, um, you know, uh, as everybody knows, I, I have famously started to, um, I famously started to uh, uh, get on board with uh, Robot Chicken. What do you think is funny? Yeah, I guess. I'm on board, Robot Chicken. And um, Children's Hospital, some of it, very funny. Okay. It's with uh, Rob Corddry. Rob Corddry from he started on the Daily Show and now he's an actor. You know, Hot Tub Time Machine, and uh, there's 22 episodes. They're short. They're not, you know, they're not half hour episodes, mm-hmm. and it's all about uh, what goes on at this uh, children's hospital. And there's a uh, bunch of um, uh, extras, including a gag reel, deleted scenes, and uh, you know, it's kind of good. I think Children's Hospital is funny. I'm well, uh, Henry, I'm, you know, Henry's in it. Henry Winkler's in it. Uh, your friend Henry. Yes. I'm going to go and uh, I'm going to visit the um, uh, Children's Hospital and, and see if I can find some humor there. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. It's funny. All right. I admit it. Okay. Uh, you know what else is really, really cool is uh, the kids in the hall. I had forgotten just how unbelievably funny these guys were. I mean, they really were. Kids I'm in the crushing hall. your head. It's just, I'm crushing your head. That became such a part of the vernacular for a while there. All that Kids in the Hall stuff, really unbelievably hysterical. We now have the Kids in the Hall, the complete series. What I always forgot was that Lorne Michaels produced this. Lorne Michaels is like... The, you know, Lorne Michaels, is the guy is gold, man. It's just everything he touches, except, except for a handful of those movies. Saturday Night Live, yeah. Conan O'Brien, Kids it, in the Hall. Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon. I mean, it's really amazing. The guy is just gold. He's, he's, he really is. He's, he's one of the most American. He's one of the most important men in American comedy. He is. And Canadian comedy, too. Look at yeah. the kids in the hall. These are I all Canadians. Know. I know. And, uh, you know, really, honestly, this show was so unbelievably funny. I'm amazed that only a handful of these guys have really broken out and, and that they haven't become bigger stars in their own right. But 
because uh, they're Canadian. You know, there's a, there's a weird thing with Canada. Can, well, Canadians look, are weird. But look, I mean, we you know they're like you, they're like our inbred cousins. But look, all the SCTV people. I mean, they they hit it big. Almost every single one of them. I don't think that there's anybody in Kids in the Hall who is as funny as John Candy or Eugene Levy or Eugene Levy. Yeah, Eugene Levy's. Well, Eugene Levy has that voice. Yes, where he could just deliver anything, and it's because a lot a lot of these guys they're very um, the kids in the hall. I mean, they're funny, but they're very sort of kind of bland looking. Yeah, like when you look at John Candy, he's like the hilarious fat guy, like John Belushi, or you, Eugene Levy can play the can play the dad, like the befuddled dad. Yeah, these guys they're just. I mean, I'm t- talking movies. I don't mean the show. The show's very funny, but when it comes to movies, where do you put these guys? They're just they can't play the dad. They're too old to play. I mean, you know, they can't play the young guy anymore. Where where, where do you put them? Yep. Well, um, anyway, the uh, now what this also includes is uh, the kids in the hall. Death comes to town, which is an you know it's a, that's like a secondary series. It was like this little eight episode, um, this little weird eight episode addendum where they play everyone in this small town, like every single person, all the men and all the women. So it's uh, it, that's a little bit of a weird experiment, um, and I don't necessarily find it that funny. But the rest of the series is hilarious. So um, you get the whole thing. You know, every every kids in the hall bit that you've ever wanted, it's all right here. Uh, boy, that's a huge set. That is just monstrous. Uh, Rookie Blue, the complete first season. You know, Mark, the Rookies, one of my all time favorite TV cop shows. Really? Yeah, I love the Rookies. You know all those all those TV theme songs from the seventies. They, they were great. great. They, they were just terrific. They just got you excited for the show, and now everything just make they're all morose and boring. Uh, this is not that good. Uh, Rookie Blue is an attempt to kind of do the rookies, but the thing about the rookies back in the seventies was that they understood it had to be gritty first and sexy maybe, but didn't need to be. This wants to be sexy first and foremost. And uh, the L.A. Times quote that they use on the back of the box, it just tells it all. Uh, Grey's Anatomy with guns. I'm sorry. That, that, that just does not appeal to me. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, Grey's Anatomy with guns. Boy, you know, every time I've seen Grey's Anatomy, how I really wish that those doctors were packing. It would make the show so much more interesting. Rookie Why? blue. Yeah. It's like NYPD blue babies. Yeah, but it's just, it's like, I don't want to see a soap opera. I want to see, if, if, if you're wearing a cop uniform and you're on a TV show, you better be kicking butt. I want you to see you shooting people, punching people, tackling people, catching bad guys, and just being generally violent. That's what I want to see. I don't want to see Grey's Anatomy with guns. Neither do I. Give me a break. Anyway, so it's, it's kind of a lame show. Um, there it is. And then our last little TV thing before we jump into... We got uh, this. Oh, yeah. It's so good. Tell us about it. It's the ABC family company, Melissa and Joey. You know, it's funny. It's like, it's, uh, it's Melissa Joan Hart, who, by the way, owns a uh, yogurt shop about half a mile down, my, down the road Does she really? It's called... Um, Melissa Joan Hart's yogurt shop? <laughs> it's called Sweethearts. Okay. Uh, Melissa Joan Hart. Get, I bet they'd get more people if she called it Melissa Joan Hart's yogurt shop. You know what? Actually, I, I think that place is failing because you know here's what, here's what they did in front of Sweethearts, which is the Melissa Joan Hart. When yes. I was getting off into a total another yeah. thing, the Melissa Joan Hart yogurt shop down the street from me, about half a mile. Um, they I don't think they're doing very well. It's a pretty big space just to sell yogurt. Yeah. And they put in the parking lot on Saturdays in the morning. I don't know when it is. They put one of those big jumpy things, you know, like in kids' birthday parties, those big inflatable jumpy castles where sure. you, your kids go in when they jump around. Sure. They 
put one of those in the parking lot every Saturday from like whatever ten a.m. to uh, ten a.m. to three p.m. Okay, because they're they're just trying to get kids to show up to their sure. stupid Melissa Joan Hart yogurt sure. shop, and they can't, so they threw there a jumpy castle in there. All right. Anyway, um, stupid show because uh, and it's you know it's like instead of calling it you know the local politician who needs to hire a manny, uh, they realize that they're e- it's easier just co- it's easier easier marketed. Easier to understand for an older audience of women or stupid people if they just call it Melissa and Joey. It's like spending time with your friends, Melissa and Joey. It doesn't need any explaining because it's Melissa and Joey starring Melissa and Joey. It's better than calling it something else. It's a terrible show. DVD has blooper reel, uh, blooper reel, uh, a featurette, and uh, some crap, honestly. There you go. Years. That's very nice. It's junk. No, That's it's very not. nice. It's junk. Okay, and then we also have, uh, you know, History Channel and A&E, they've made a whole new mini industry for themselves out of these uh, reality television shows about crazy people who do crazy things and have crazy jobs in the world's dirtiest jobs and world's most dangerous jobs and ice road truckers and all that stuff, right? It's a, it's a whole new cottage industry of just, for, for people who sit in their couches at home and go, I can't believe somebody gets paid to do that. Well, this is IRT Deadliest Roads, Season 1. And it's a, kind of an ice road truckers thing, um, except it's, it's all over the place. And this is just this is about, basically imagine that you, every week you're going to follow a different teamster uh, who's got to drive a different, unbelievably treacherous place to. It's like, it, here is a UPS driver. He has to drive to Timbuktu to deliver a package. He has to go through, uh, you know, bee-infested swamps and... Uh, no, no, down- no. Here, here's, here's, here's the show I'd want to see. Yeah. I'd want to see a, a reality show where the FedEx driver yeah. actually has to deliver the package to Tom Hanks and Castaway. <laughs> He's got to go there. Yeah. He can't wait till he get Tom Hanks isn't going to get the thing and then go back to civilization and yeah, open up the that's picture. True. Open up the box. Yeah, no, no. That's true. FedEx got to take it to him. There you go. I'm just saying. Well, actually, uh, this is... A decent. I mean, this is a Blu-ray set. This is ten episodes and three Blu-ray discs. And uh, despite all the fact that I'm being kind of snarky here, there really is interesting stuff here. Now, it's almost more of a travel log than anything else. You you cannot believe that people actually drive these roads and these bridges and these inclines. It is kind of insane. Uh, it's not as interesting as you might hope it is because it, it, at a certain point it almost becomes a Disneyland ride. It becomes like an Indiana Jones ride. It's like, ooh, what's around the next corner? Uh-oh, there's a rock. There's a boulder. Look, how is he going to get across that? And you, you sort of forget that it's uh, it's real. But um, you know what? It, uh, it it has its moments, and I think it's actually better than Ice Road Truckers. Wait, why don't you read uh, listener mail, which you promised we would do? I'm going to do it right now. Get in some listener mail. Um, we've got, uh, let's get our first listener mail tidbit here from uh, Peter in Toronto says wait Mark uh, in a previous show a listener wrote in inquiring about Sony PlayStation 3's up converting and video scaling capabilities I wanted to share with you and the listeners an article on IGN that helps PlayStation 3 owners get the most out of their high dev experience with this comprehensive guide optimizing your PS3 for Blu-ray and it is at gear.ign.com backslash articles backslash 938 backslash 938051 lowercase p1 dot html 
anyway, but do, optimizing your PS3 for Blu-ray, you could probably just search on that as well. And uh, he says uh, if you Google search for IGN optimizing PS3, you'll probably get up the article as well. Anyway, um, yeah, there, there, there are some tricks you can pull to actually pull that off. Uh, but it's, you know, there are certainly a lot of people out there having similar problems. And Nicholas Gordon, who has provided a lot of great openings for us, writes us and says, uh, Yes, Mark, people do call me Nick. My friends have often commented that I sound like the name a superhero would have. Clark Kent, Peter Parker, Bruce Wayne, Nick Gordon. Well, maybe he's Commissioner Gordon's uh, nephew. There we go. He says, What is it with Disney movies on Blu-ray and the Wizard of Oz Blu-ray? Why are they in letterbox and not widescreen? My sister got Wizard of Oz Super Mega Awesome Edition on DVD, and I got it on Blu-ray. The DVD is widescreen. The Blu-ray has these annoying black bars on the sides. What's the deal? Well, uh, this will segue us into the Kubrick thing that we got a bunch of emails on. Uh, the deal is that Wizard of Oz was shot, uh, you know, uh, square. It was not a widescreen movie. And uh, I think they did some kind of cropped widescreen releases for DVD that are, do not represent the full picture. So if, you, if you're getting the Blu-ray, you're getting the full-size frame, but it is not going to fill your widescreen television. It's going to be cropped on the sides, which is kind of how things are when you see these you know, older movies in a regular theater. The sides get cropped in a, in a regular theater, so it's a, little, a slightly more true representation. Now, we got a bunch of emails also about the uh, Kubrick Blu-rays and, uh, you know, the ones that are widescreen or widescreen, but Kubrick wanted them full frame, and why aren't they full frame? And Kubrick Nobody full knows. Frame. It's it, the worst. I wish Kubrick would oh. rise from the dead just long enough to explain this crap, because it, 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 it goes on and on. It goes, it, it's never ending. And, you pulled and everyone a, claims that they know. And you pulled a, a quote from... Uh, John Alcott. John Alcott and Leon Vitale. Wasn't there a Leon Vitale? Well, the, the, well, here's what it is. Uh, hang on, let me check. Oh, now, you, now, you, now you got me scrambling. Because well, there was a famous okay uh, in John Alcott's uh, script for. Um, hang on, John Alcott. As, <laughs> well, I, I while you're well here, I'm going to vamp for you for a second because I remember I went to the uh, the press day for the original Kubrick DVD box set. And Jan Harlan and Leon Vitali were there. And when people kept asking about the full-frame versus widescreen issue, uh, Leon Vitali gave an answer that took about 10 minutes and didn't answer anybody's question. And it basically boiled down to, well, Kubrick knew the movies would be released for widescreen, so he shot them framed for widescreen, but he also shot them full-frame so that he'd have a bigger frame that was still nicely composed for when they go to television because he didn't want everything panned and scanned or cropped. So basically, he shot it composed for both, and uh, he always liked the full frame more, but, uh, you know, whatever. Take what you have. Well, okay, there's two, there's two things I'll say about this, and this conversation will go on forever. And the, the Shining and Full Metal Jacket are sort of the key films here. Right. In Kubrick's storyboards for The Shining, uh, his instructions to Alcott, which were written in, one, in, the, in the margins of one of the storyboards, yep. this is what Kubrick writes. Stanley Kubrick wrote this. The frame is exactly 185 to 1. Obviously, you compose for that, but protect the full 133 to 1 area. So he wanted it shot 133, but he wanted... He, I, I think creatively, he wanted 185. He says the frame is exactly 185, but you compose for that, but protect yeah, the 133 yeah, yeah. area. Now, why did he want the 133 area protected? Is it for TV? Because he didn't like pan and scan is because he wanted to torture us from beyond the grave. That's what Probably. I think it is. Yeah. And then if you look at the uh, the Stanley Kubrick archive book, which I spent like three hundred dollars on, it's yeah. an amazing Tashin book. There is a note at the beginning about uh, aspect ratios. 
though his last three films were, by the way, this is like definitive. This is a yeah. huge $300 Tashin book on Stanley Kubrick. This is insane. Uh, though his last three films were masked to 185 to 1 for theatrical release, in compliance with the standard format, Kubrick composed them to be also available or also viewable at the full aspect ratio of 133 to 1. Okay. And in fact, they say here, they actually um, give you the aspect ratio of each of Kubrick's films. Now, I don't know if that's the aspect ratio that he shot it in uh, or, or the aspect ratio he wanted to project it in. I have no idea. All right. It's, it, it's, it's really, it's, it it's, it's unanswerable. Yeah, so that bottom line, it, it is unanswerable. But we'll, we'll know more when we get uh, some, you know, some of the other Blu-rays, hopefully. But that'll be Barry Lyndon and Lolita, and that won't help us any. Uh, yeah, I got an interesting email from Chris Walker uh, over in Birmingham, Alabama, who said, I had a theater friend in high school whose parents would actually screen films in their home upstairs with new reels and everything. I remember seeing The Great Dictator in 1981, Good Times. They turned a blind eye to it and let us community theater kids drink at the cast parties. Uh, and uh, I asked him, too, whether or not it was like a straight-up projector or what their system was. And he goes, yeah, they had a projector and chairs set up in rows to make a little theater. Isn't that cool? Like to have just like a, a, a private screening room in, in somebody's house? It's cool. I mean, they had a projector. Some people used to have actual projectors. Thread up the projector, film reels, the whole deal. You realize the, 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 the most famous screening room in, in like America, if not the world, is the, uh, the home viewing parties that uh, Hugh Hefner gives. I think it's like every Tuesday or something Hugh Hefner has, he screens a film. Yeah. And he invites people to see it, very select few. That's interesting. And they munch on munchies, and they watch a classic film, since Hefner loves old classic movies. And that's like the most... Wow. That's like the most exclusive home video screening party ever. There it is. Or Hugh Hefner's either weekly or monthly uh, viewing parties. And as we uh, sign off, just a few more films I want to give a little quick shout-out to. There is uh, This Time, which is this really kind of a cool little music documentary... Uh, this is a little indie film that's kind of being uh, distributed out there. But, you know, it is, uh, it's an interesting profile of these backup singers, uh, six of them who are just, they, they're, you know, trying to, I guess, I guess you could say this is sort of the American Idol that's not an American Idol. You know, a lot of these people, they, they're not just on the street saying, I'm going to go on American Idol and I'm going to hit it big on TV. These are people who actually have, um, you know, they've spent time being real backup singers for real performers. Elvis and Aretha and Dusty Springfield and, uh, you know, Dionne Warwick. And it, this is, I mean, that's their, that's their job. So they are already in the business. How are they going to break through? Um, it's really actually uh, very inspiring, very interesting, and quite well done. So uh, I would recommend that for anybody that wants a, a look at that side of the business this time. And then we also have a couple of uh, royal wedding things here. Uh, the royal wedding, William and Catherine. This is the official BBC um, DVD of that just ridiculously overcovered event. Uh, grab it April 29th, 2011, as if you ever could possibly forget that date. And then also there is British royal weddings of the 20th century, which is uh, from British Pathé. And uh, this is for, you know, if you can't get enough with the latest one and you've just got to revisit all the other royal weddings from the, uh, from the last hundred years, they, they pour it on. I can't imagine what a low, lonely, lonely life you would need to have to just sit around and watch this going all the way back to, you know, 1919. But uh, there it is. Prince Andrew, Prince Charles, Princess Anne, 
Henry, Duke of Gloucester, Prince Albert, Duke of York, Lord Mountbatten. I mean, it just goes on and on and on, and it gets real tired fast. But, you know, if you're a royal wedding lunatic, you will love every single second of it. It is This is over three hours of just royal wedding nonsense. Mark, it's made for you. You made fun of me. Yes, I did. All right, folks, that's it. That's the show for this week. We are done. We'll see you next week.